You're listening to the Today in Manufacturing podcast. Hi, I'm David Manti, and welcome to a new episode of the Today in Manufacturing podcast. With me this week are Jeff Ranke and Anna Wells. We each have more than 15 years of experience covering the manufacturing industry. Every week, we take the five most popular stories on our websites and discuss the implications they have on the industry going forward. Before we get started, please make sure to like, share, and subscribe to the podcast. You can also help us out a lot by leaving us a positive review on whatever platform you use. Finally, if you want to email the podcast, you can reach any of us at Jeff, David, or Anna at IEN.com with email the podcast in the subject line. We're also live every Thursday on YouTube, so subscribe to at IEN Magazine to get a notification. Anna, welcome back this week. Thanks. Good to see you. How's everyone yeah. feeling at home? Uh, everybody is back in business. That is excellent. Yeah. Uh, Jeff, how are you doing this week? Good. Enjoying the heat wave we're experiencing right now. Yeah. In the, November in Wisconsin, it's 70 degrees. That doesn't happen. This is the greatest weather. Like, uh, you know, normally that fall window in Wisconsin yeah. closes really fast. <laughs> I'm okay having a few extra yeah. weeks of it. It's nice. All right. Well, before we get started, we have a word from our sponsor. Regardless of what you hear, supply chain disruptions, labor challenges, and low-cost foreign competition are not the biggest threats to U.S. manufacturers. Ransomware gangs, phishing schemes, and IP theft now top this list. That's why the Security Breach Podcast, hosted by Jeff Ranke, takes these hackers to task, examining how groups like Reveal and Exotic Lily are able to organize their attacks and how the industrial sector can protect themselves against tools like Cobalt Strike and Raspberry Robin. Stay up to date on all these vital cybersecurity topics by listening, downloading, and subscribing to the Security Breach Podcast. And we're back. And before we jump into our first story, Jeff, a little bit more about Security Breach. Yeah, we've been talking about this upcoming episode for a couple of weeks. This is the one where we've got the former Israeli special operations um, operative that's coming on talking about just everything they've been doing and chasing down this ghost sec hacker. Again, this is the one that's going after especially industrial control systems. Uh, we talked a lot about Industry 4.0, how a lot of this new automation and connectivity is great on the plant floor, but it's also taking inventory of all of these new connections because of all the vulnerabilities that they also create from a cybersecurity perspective. So it's awesome. It's, it's The guy is a great speaker. It's really interesting stuff. As always, a little scary. Yeah, good but, scary. Um, but yeah, just a lot of great information. We've got some awesome guests booked in the coming weeks as well. It is a podcast with a lot of teachable moments. <laughs> Absolutely. All right. Our first story this week, DeLorean's daughter to build new model in Detroit. This week, DeLorean Next Generation, which is not the DeLorean Motor Company, announced plans to build its model JZD, which stands for John Zachary DeLorean in Detroit. The sports car will assemble, will begin assembly in January 2023 before beginning being unveiled later next year. DeLorean's daughter, Kat, will spearhead the project as part of an effort to, quote, put her father's final business plan to work. She also has plans to partner with other manufacturing companies to help meet some of the challenges faced by the automotive industry today. Anna, now I had some confusion, especially once I learned that there were two DeLorean automakers out there yeah which was quite confusing i didn't really know that the market could support two deloreans um but what were your thoughts on delorean next generation and uh some of the ways she looks to kind of bring this new model to market yeah i see um personally a lot of red flags here Mm. um to me it feels sort of like this case with uh cat delorean might be a bit backwards like we have the brand 
now we should make a car mm, versus yeah, like yeah. we have automotive, uh, you know, acumen and and talent and design then then the ip yeah like i mean she says she's fulfilling her father's last legacy project like i don't know if i buy that exactly uh well not, she's not gonna say this is my father's last cash grab well she's not she doesn't have an automotive background her mm-hmm. background's in security and banking i think so okay yeah that secondly if this is really supposed to hit production in um january of 2023 they're still doing like a a logo contest uh (laughs) there's just like there's a lot that we don't know about this vehicle yet and then secondly i think and this maybe is the biggest issue of all to me um and it speaks to your confusion over the delorean name there's got to be some potential copyright issues that is going to take down either this company or the other one. Mm-hmm. Um, Cat DeLorean is not pleased that this other company, DeLorean Motor Company, exists. Uh, I read a report where they cited a post that she made on her Instagram that said, DeLorean Motor Company is, quote, not John DeLorean's company, not 40 years old and not associated with the DeLorean family or my father's ongoing legacy. Please stop lying and stop speaking about John now. He despised you. (laughs) Assuming like she's referring to Steve. uh, I think Steve Wynn was his name who started, um, resurrected that DeLorean brand Mm -hmm. um, that's now being made into an EV. So again, like to your point, how many companies um, can market two high-end EVs called DeLorean (laughs) At the exact same time, like I'd argue that they won't because attorneys are going to get involved and hobble one of them. Um, This is a tenuous business model under the best of circumstances trying to launch a brand new car. Mm -hmm. And then if you look at um, if you look at some of the issues already that DeLorean Motor Company has faced, uh, they've already been sued by Karma for um, allegations of intellectual property theft. if both of these companies exist in two years, I'm surprised. I don't know that either one of them is going to make it. And if if anyone has an advantage, they're going to try to take each other out with, mm-hmm. for, for that name, I think. Yeah. And it, it, they don't have the money or the, you know, to, to support going. It's not like they're GM. They have deep pockets that they can fight a legal battle. Neither one of them can. Yeah. So. Um, did Wynn, uh, Steve Wynn, right? Did he buy sort of like, what was left of DeLorean Motor Company? Like he owns that, right? It's not like he just tried to resurrect the brand. He like owns the IP to that. So as far as I know, he was like a former mechanic of DeLorean vehicles. Okay. And then at some point in the mess of the, I think like 2014, 15, um, he somehow bought the, okay. yeah, the name of that vehicle or the vehicle's IP or something. Yeah, but, I mean, I know it's her last name, but I feel like she might not have as much of a right to the DeLorean automaker name as she might think she does. Exactly. I, and I don't know like legally how this will parse out, but there's no way both of these cars go to market under that name. Uh, Jeff, to me, this sounds like a lesson plan from a high school that might not even come to fruition by January of next year. Wow. Um, do you foresee a car ever coming uh, out of DeLorean next generation? Usually I think it could. 
Okay. okay. So in, a, in reversal of roles, I'm actually going to be more positive than you guys on this one. That is the shocker. Um, as far as the legal elements go, DeLorean Motor Company has existed for a while because when people started collecting these vehicles, they wanted the parts. Mm-hmm. So that's where it basically started. It was like a parts inventory warehouse for DeLoreans. Then they decided they were going to branch into production, which is where these new people came on board. This one, obviously a brand new company. And I don't, I don't know if there'll be as many legal issues because you are dealing with her last name. Like mm-hmm. if she wants to call it her last name, Motor Company, I, I don't, I don't know how you can stop somebody from doing that. No, this is like, I think you this, can. Yeah, this is yeah. how they bought the McDonald's name, even though their last name was McDonald's, and then forced them to change the name of their. But restaurant. they're calling it DeLorean Next Generation, not DeLorean Motor Company. Okay. Okay. So I think I don't know, but I'm I, not no, a lawyer. Okay. I think I I'm just confused because the way, you're the optimistic one. I think that's where I'm really thrown. <clears throat> well, the fun thing is when you think about John DeLorean, there's a lot of things on a personal level that can come into play here that lead to a negative perception. Okay. Mm-hmm. So for the sake of this and the fact that it's his daughter looking to sort of pay homage to what he did, I'm going to kind of put that to the side for a second. Mm-hmm. And if you really want to do that, if you go back, John DeLorean was a genius. Mm-hmm. He absolutely was. He was the father of American muscle cars. The reason he rose to prominence at GM was because he basically brought the, the GTO to, mm-hmm. uh, to fruition. So the Pontiac GTO, basically the iconic muscle car from the mid-60s to the mid-70s, that's where his legacy comes from. Yeah. So if you do want to honor that legacy in automotive engineering, and then they showed some of the prototype shots, it looks like a, an updated version of that vehicle from DeLorean motor car from Back to the Future and everything else. Yeah. Don't do that. Oh. Okay. Get rid of the going doors. Yeah. Get rid of these other things. Focus on performance. Okay. Mm-hmm. We've seen Dodge say no more challengers, no more chargers. We're not going to do that. Yeah. Okay. That's fine. But as we've discussed on this podcast before, that potentially creates a vacuum for certain types of auto buyers out there. Yeah. If you're going to create a higher end vehicle, that is unique, that probably costs a little bit more, that you're not looking to produce hundreds of thousands of, go that route. Yeah. Pay homage to John DeLorean by coming out with something that is a muscle car type of vehicle. When I look at these mock-ups, raise the height of that vehicle. Don't mm-hmm. make it so sleek and close to the ground. Give it some attitude. Give it some noise. Whether it's an EV or gas-powered, I don't know. But the reality is they don't even know that right now. Yeah. They, don't they, have, do they have a very loose structure in terms of what this vehicle even is or what it's going to look like. Mm-hmm. Where it could also work is the fact that they're talking about outsourcing. At least that's what I read into it when she oh, talks yeah. about working with, mm-hmm. what was the quote here? Partner with other manufacturing companies <clears throat> uh, to help meet some of the challenges faced by the automotive industry. Yeah. So she's talking, I would, to me, that means workers yeah. and, and finding enough workers to make cars, supply chain issues, pricing issues, all of that. So if you're going to outsource a lot of those functions and just focus on the design of the vehicle there in Detroit, which I think is awesome too, because again, paying homage to that legacy of John DeLorean and being in Detroit, I think that's fantastic. Those are the things that they could leverage and take advantage of and potentially making this work. Now, it's still kind of baffles me that DeLorean continues to have such a a sweet spot in people's hearts and souls because from a just performance perspective, it was a horrible car. Yeah. yeah. Like the DMC Mm -hmm. was not good. So again, get rid of that. Go back to what John, John DeLorean did well. And focus on those things. So you're saying more of a Pontiac. I'm saying make it different. Yeah. No, you're right. I mean, uh, really, this all just goes to the incredible popularity of Back to the Future. I mean, that has to be the only reason that everyone has like a special place in their heart it for the is, DeLorean. Yeah. 
Right. I don't know. I think there are some people who just really dig this vehicle because it was very, very different. And now if you drive one, <laughs> it couldn't be more different than other stuff you see on the road, especially, I mean, the stainless steel body. It's ridiculous. Yeah. Um, so Cat uh, plans to introduce an engineering program to public high schools to help students uh, help put students in apprenticeships and at universities. Um, so I think her outreach, I think she's very well intentioned. I think maybe she's a little ignorant as to the actual rigors of the automotive industry. Uh, and the reason I say it sounds like a poorly planned high school project is uh, the design contest with the new logo. Mm-hmm. Um, I don't know. Uh, a lot of DeLorean's legacy goes into the look and uh, the aesthetics of the uh, the entire brand. And I just didn't get that didn't ring true when you come to having a design contest to make a new logo. I don't know. Well, again, that's the first thing I do different. Well, so. see, yeah, seems like a lot of loose ends for wanting to start production in three months. Yeah, that's not. I don't know. It just seems like, like you said, sort of a naive uh, look at like how challenging it is to actually build a car from scratch and produce it. At I don't know. Well, and it's. I mean, it's almost every other week. Well, I mean, every week where we're talking about some sort of menu uh, automotive uh, manufacturing startup, where we're just like. Maybe yeah. doesn't look good though, and they have the backing of someone like an Amazon. Um, all right, well, let's move on to our next most popular story this week. OSHA proposes steep penalties after seventh worker severely injured. Based in Ohio, Knox U.S. makes luxury vinyl flooring, but the company has a history of inaction when it comes to workplace injuries. On April twenty eighth, a worker who was only on the job for six weeks became entangled in a laminator line C1 winder machine at a Knox plant in Fostoria. The employee's finger became caught in a plastic winding machine's rotating spindle, and the worker's entire body was pulled around the machine's spindle, causing multiple severe injuries that required surgery. According to OSHA, the accident was the seventh injury at the Knox plant since February 2017, related to a failure to follow required machine safety procedures. Owned by South Korea-based Noxcore, the plant has about 200 employees. Over the past five years, the company has recorded at least 13 serious injuries at the plant caused by exposure to burn and amputation hazards. Following an investigation into the most recent injury, OSHA proposed $1,232,705 in penalties. Knox opened the Fostoria plant in November 2015, OSHA placed the plant in its severe violator enforcement program just two years later. Anna, your thoughts on Knox and how they're doing business in Ohio. How long do you get to be in the severe violator enforcement program? Before they shut you down? Just forever? Yeah. Well, I think, uh, yeah, you can be in it forever. And the idea is that if you're in it, the penalties are higher. They're going to be higher because you're going to be um, audited in um, What's the word I'm looking for? Looked at more closely. They're going to come investigated. In and, yeah. yeah, they're going to come in and do um, yeah, do their job. Oh, plan visits. Yeah. yeah, right. Yeah, I just it. <laughs> no, but you're right. I mean, you make a good point. We see companies where uh, they finally uh, they shut their doors, and mm-hmm. it just seems like it takes decades, right, for that to happen. I mean, this is a pretty limited um, time period in which there were seven severe injuries at this plant. I mean, it seems pretty egregious, and they've documented the negligence that was taking place there. Um, 
you know, the challenging part, I think, is when you look at a company like this, like Knox, um, who makes a product that is a luxury vinyl tile for residential um, applications, commercial stuff like that. Uh, they often companies like this can often be in charge of their own narrative in the marketplace because there's not really a, a brand recognition with the end user. I mean, mm -hmm. if you bought if you were doing a kitchen remodel, like, for example, like you just did, Jeff, yeah. do you know where the no. tile is coming from? Probably no. not. You no. just pick something out out of a book and then. Yeah. So in this case, um, you know, I, I looked at their website. They have this really forward facing press release about this. Uh, partnership they have with LG Chem where their um, LG Chem is going to supply them with PVC derived from renewable plant based raw materials such as used vegetable oil, like this very nice kind of glad handing mm -hmm. photo about, um, you know, the sustainability and and it's great. Like they'll gladly tout their sustainability initiatives. And then behind the scenes, they have this factory that has oil on the floor, trip hazards, unguarded machinery, and it's happening repeatedly. So to see, um, I know we talk about sometimes OSHA's fines being um, too little, too mm -hmm. low to serve as a deterrent. So it's good to be, be seeing something in the million dollar plus category here because that's enough, I think, to get a headline out of it so people see that this stuff is happening. Otherwise, this, can, this company can continue to kind of control this narrative and it becomes very one-sided. They're just <laughs> promoting themselves as this, this company that, um, I don't know. They just they get to tell their story, yeah, right? Yeah. Nobody great. else. Yeah, no, yeah. they're they're great for the earth. Yeah, bad for the worker. Yeah, exactly. And so they kind of get to hide behind the fact that nobody knows who they are because mm -hmm. when people buy those products, they just don't know. So in this case, I think OSHA blasting them with a fine that's big enough to generate some headlines, at least draw some attention to this company. Because when I googled this story, which I usually do before we do the podcast to see what kind of coverage it's getting elsewhere. Um, there was a lot of coverage of it. Um, mm -hmm. So this name that people maybe didn't know before, they do know now. Um, back to my original uh, point when, when I started here, though, it is frustrating to me to see that a, a company can continue to operate for this long with this stuff repeatedly happening. And I know we ramp up the fines and the inspections and stuff, but at what point? Like, what is the end point? You right. know? How many people are we going to let get caught in a machine? Well, and uh, one of the frustrating things for me is that when you look up, because you can look up the uh, the history um, on OSHA's website, and I think the last time somebody was severely injured, it wound up being like $18,000 that mm -hmm. they paid in terms of fines. And uh, so I think, again, being part of that severe violator enforcement program is uh, part of uh, the reason that these fines were so high. Uh, Jeff, the other thing that I found uh, kind of troubling is that Sometimes when there are these accidents at companies, it's one machine. You know, it is uh, one machine where the guarding has been bypassed uh, forever. And it's just an older machine. And that's how it's always been used. But when they looked at this facility, it was all over, all yeah. over the facility. You know, I mean, Anna mentioned the oil on the floor. Uh, as you're looking through the OSHA reports, you know, I expected to see all these violations tied to this laminator line, uh, the winding machine. And it was all over the plant. Mm -hmm. And uh, I think what you're going to talk a little bit about is how that's maybe a company-wide problem. I think this just reeks of being a culture issue here for a couple of different reasons. And thank you. Yes, the word I couldn't think of was an OSHA inspection for whatever reason. Oh. Good thing I'm on a podcast. We don't need yeah. words or anything. No, part of the podcast is that people get to hear our thought process live. Yeah. Slowly <laughs> unwind. Yeah. <laughs> um, I do. So this is a South Korean company. 
they started this plan in 2015. It only took them two years to get on this severe violator enforcement mm-hmm. program. Mm-hmm. They are still on it. By the way, that's public record. There's like 400 companies on there. Yeah. Um, a lot of construction companies, but also some manufacturers. Um, I think it's a culture issue for a couple of different reasons. First of all, South Korea is part of this conglomerate that is also, which the U.S. and 40 other countries are part of, called the Organization for Economic Cooperation and Development. Basically, these are democratic, open market companies, developed countries, all that kind of thing. They're one of the worst in terms of safety. They're Mm. the third worst in safety in terms of this group. So we're not looking at underdeveloped countries. We're not looking at places where there is a training issue or lower pay or whatever. These are places that are in manufacturing with strong markets. So when you take that culture where there's already a safety issue potentially, you bring it over here. Now, I think those things just don't always translate well. Mm -hmm. Okay. So I think it starts there. But when you look at this facility, just from like Google Maps, it's huge. It is absolutely enormous. Now, I don't know exactly. Maybe you need more space for these machines. You're cutting boards. You're you're doing a, a lot of shipping and receiving coming out. When I saw only 200 people work there, that was a surprise. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Typically, a facility of that size, I would have said double that at least, yeah. more like 500. When you look on some of the job boards, there's over, there's like 70 open production jobs at this facility oh, that wow. they're trying to fill. So this leads me to hypothesize a little bit. There's, maybe there's not enough people there. Okay. Yeah. And they're still trying to increase output, keep up with demand. Obviously, anybody who's done anything around their house right now, it takes a while to get stuff. Mm-hmm. Uh, we were fortunate with ours that everything came in on time. So I could see some of the pressures there resulting in some of these safety issues. But the other part of this is one of the reasons as of a month ago, they had these 70 open positions is because you have these safety issues. I was going to say, it works How out. are you going to hire somebody and pay them according to Indeed and some of the other job boards, very average manufacturing salaries if they're going to an unsafe environment. Mm-hmm. So this creates sort of this circular effect where you can't hire people, so you can't keep up with demand, and that puts your whole facility and everybody else in jeopardy as well. And it all starts, in my opinion, at least looking at things from a cultural perspective that does not value employee safety. Yep. It, this just seems like blocking and tackling stuff here. You know, Keep people mm-hmm. safe at work you're going to be able to retain more people and you're going to be able to hire more people and make your job, make your whole facility and operation better. You, you raise a good point about the severe violator enforcement program being public, uh, especially as people are looking for new jobs. Um, you know, uh, do your due diligence when you're looking up the company and make sure that, you know, uh, you're making a safe decision for yourself. Uh, yeah. It's not always, what was the company we were talking? Was it Amazon where, uh, the coworkers during the uh, the tour were telling him to get out. Oh. Foxconn. Foxconn, mm-hmm. yeah. I mean, it's not always that that happens where you get such a red flag in the door. But, uh, you know, just look it up a little bit. Yeah. And a weird number, I was looking at that list, mm-hmm. a weird number of construction companies from New York and New Jersey on that list. Oh. So be careful yeah. if you're in the trades in the Northeast. Uh, the agency cited Knox for eight willful violations, six serious violations, one repeat violation, and one other than serious violation. In a statement, and just because you know, I want to keep my uh, track record of reading statements from OSHA officials going, <laughs> uh, OSHA Regional Administrator Bill Donovan said the company's, quote, continued failure to correct previously identified hazards has led to another worker suffering severe and potentially life-altering injuries. 
OSHA levied the willful violations because the company frequently exposed workers to caught-in and amputation hazards. And according to OSHA, Knox US failed to establish, test, and require the use of machine lockout-tagout procedures or train workers on hazards. Uh, it's frustrating that it seems like we have at least one of these stories a week, not necessarily on the podcast, but um, over the week of coverage. Um, and I just wish that, uh, I mean, I you know, hopeful that companies would do better when it comes to safety of their workers. You know, I'm usually very critical of OSHA. I think this this program that they put out there and they make the list of these severe violators public like this, mm-hmm. I think that's a great tactic, ideally to maybe pressure some of these folks into doing just what you're saying. Just be better. Yeah. Jeff, are you anti-safety? If I get if I get called anti-jobs for making one very innocuous offhand comment weeks ago, months ago. Yeah. Can, can, can no, I'm, I'm. How am I anti-safety? You said you don't like OSHA. You normally don't like OSHA. I don't like OSHA a lot of the time. Is it because you're anti-safety? Anti-safety. Yeah. I'm anti-bureaucracy. Anti-safety and anti-jobs. Here we are speaking for At the least people. you're taking a stand, David. <laughs> That's fine. Going on a limb. I can't take a stand. I'm a robot. Our next most popular story. <laughs> if you're a Tesla robot, you really have a hard time taking a stand. Oh, oh there we go. No, it can stand. It's well, no, just can't it, move. It fell over. Yeah. It did. yeah. yeah. Our next most popular story, flying car can drive on streets, take off, and land vertically. Aleph Aeronautics recently introduced the Aleph Model A, a flying car with street driving and vertical takeoff. The Model A is designed to fit within existing urban infrastructure for driving and parking. The company plans to begin production and initiate first deliveries in Q4 of 2025. It even started taking orders with a $300,000 starting price. The transition vehicle has a driving range of 200 miles and a flight range of 110 miles. Aleph has been test driving and test flying its full-size prototype since 2019. With additional models in development, Aleph is working towards the four-person sedan, the Model Z, scheduled for introduction in 2035 and priced way less at $35,000. It will be capable of flying 300 plus miles per hour or 300 plus miles with a driving range of 220 miles. The company, which was founded in 2015, has earned early support from investors and industry veterans, including Tim Draper, who among other things was the first was one of the first venture capitalists to invest in Tesla. Uh, it's also backed by former head of DARPA and Ford Aerospace, Dr. Anthony Tether. In a private demonstration last fall, the car reportedly lifted straight up like a drone, then rotated into a biplane and immediately flew off. Jeff, I'm always curious of private demonstrations that were only seen by investors and not recorded. Oh, man. I really thought a flying car would look cooler. Yeah. This is the weirdest looking it, vehicle. Oh, it looks cool from afar. You don't like but it? But those close-up shots. Well, especially that, when it actually starts to fly. Yeah. Like, you're basically, it rotates, so you're looking out the ceiling. Yeah. Yeah. It is weird. Like, just that dynamic makes me hope this is, man, not it is not ready for prime time. Mm-hmm. I, I don't get it. And what's really funny is reading the article before watching the video, like, these private equity guys are so excited they're yeah. just they're just falling over themselves, and then you see it, and you're like, no one's gonna get in there. Yeah, that is not that is not gonna fly. I don't know. Yeah. Um, I know Anna is probably gonna just debate me on all of those things because she's a huge proponent of all these new aerospace. I put technologies. a de- I put a deposit down. <laughs> <laughs> I am ready for this. The one thing that I could see 
as we go this route, really being part of that thing that leads to the thing is the VTOL function, the vertical mm-hmm. takeoff and landing. What I, if we can figure out a way to put that functionality in there that it can happen rather rapidly mm-hmm. and use some of those LIDAR-like proximity sensors so we're not flying into each other, you could see that being a huge potential solution in terms of safety on the highways um, and avoiding accidents, avoiding huge backups and traffic jams, things like that. So that part of it, I really like being able to potentially implement into a vehicle for looking at far out technologies. It seems like right now that in and of itself would cost 35 grand at least. Mm-hmm. So I, those those numbers just seem way too far out there. Like even in a decade for to think that the price would come down that far, that, that just, that's kind of mind blowing. So I think it's an interesting swing. This does not feel, I don't know, this does not feel close. Did... That prototype looked like it was going to be ready for 2025 to you? No. It looked Not like a close. student project. Yeah. It, and the thing is, again, you're playing how much. These are like 300 grand right now. Yeah. You're going to plunk that down for that? No. Like the way this thing looks. I mean, it looks, it is basically, this looks like Homer Simpson's thing on when he designed his own car. Oh, yeah. When it like, except <laughs> that, that, <laughs> That's a good point. I mean, it no. just has the big bubble and like a flat box. Well, and it's not even a flat box. It's uh, it's a mesh because it says it has no exposed um, rotors, but that's because they're all in this sort of screen that they've yeah. covered it up with. Uh, and you're right. It is really interesting how, because you're right. I think VTOLs are the future in terms of, whatever, like a uh, urban air mobility where you need to uh, lift off vertically and then transition the car to move forward. Um, B, who is watching us live, says it could be a perfect option for the new DeLorean. (laughs) Well, it's funny. Actually, DeLorean's son was developing a flying car. Of course. Yeah. Yeah. So, I mean, B, it's equally likely that this will be out with the DeLorean. I take that back. It was not his son. I believe it was was like his nephew. Okay. My bad. Family member, not his son. in the family. Someone named DeLorean. In the family. Anna, how have you been able to, you know, sit on your excitement (laughs) regarding this project? I know. Well, yeah, it's so exciting. And I definitely think that it is, as Jeff said, ready for prime time. Mm. Um, No, I just there's still so many people out there that fear electric vehicles because of a lack of infrastructure, like, (laughs) yeah, which has been almost completely debunked at this point with range improvements and portable charging and home charging and now investments in federal infrastructure and state infrastructure. How then, I ask, are we doing this flying car thing? (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Like, there's so many things. I mean, like, like, how how is licensing being handled? Where does it land? How are we driving and like, so, okay, so we're the driving and walking and biking public. Um, How are we protected from the inevitability of these things just falling out of the sky and crashing around us? Because... Planes are pretty well regulated and still Mm. these like personal and hobby planes crash every day. They crash in fields, they crash into homes, they crash into lakes, they crash into mountains. Yeah, don't worry. These will crash every day too. These will crash every day. Yeah. And you will not be able to see them when they're trying to land in front of you when you're in a vehicle. Like, I, I, okay, so obviously I I feel like the risk for collateral damage with this type of thing is massive. Mm. Um. And at 300K, like, this is a toy for rich people. And to be honest with you, like, they already have a lot of toys at their disposal. I don't care if they get this. I'm not going to shed a tear if they don't get this. Um, 
to see the suggestion that deliveries of this will take place in 2025 is absolutely laughable to me yeah. because how are we going to air traffic control all these random airplanes that now exist and are flying over highways very close to the ground, by the way? Yeah, I think it's going to be because you mentioned hobby planes. Mm-hmm. It's going to be they'll be controlled the same as that because there'll be so few of them that, you know, by 2025, air traffic control would be able to take care of like the 10 of these that they try to fly. How? Isn't it positioned as being like you're on the highway and you get stuck in traffic, so you just fly ahead? Uh, How's air traffic control monitoring that scenario? I think it's gonna, I think it's going to be similar, and that's the thing with with whenever we talk about flying cars and people throw out these ridiculous timelines, it's there. It raises so many other questions that they just sort of blow past. Like we'll figure that out later. We'll figure yeah. that out. And to yeah. me, it almost feels like a scam. Like this is criminal to be taking people's money as a down payment to suggest that something. Uh, like this that could not be done without some sort of reasonable level of legal framework that does not exist in any way at this point in three years. It just yeah. is not realistic. You, you got to think what they're looking at is a lot of the the regulatory stuff that's out there for drones right now will probably be morphed to make this work. Now it is different, obviously, because there's human beings actually in and these And a lot things. more weight. And more it, weight. Yeah. yeah, I would I agree. Mean, it's like, to me, the the dangers that could exist with something like this versus a drone is like of colossal difference. Yes and no, just because, I mean, drones can be the size of cars as well. Um, but you're right. Maybe Do there's... Do you see a lot of those? <laughs> I mean, I don't know. No, <laughs> I mean, they can. Yeah. Um, well, if you're also thinking about fewer vehicles on the road, just to play devil's advocate, you could say some of the safety issues associated with highway traffic could be... Yeah, decreased. Because are there fewer, fewer vehicles on the road though? Are, are more, they just like they're just like taking a quick break and then going back in? Yeah, I mean, yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. I, don't, I don't, I don't know. Like, I think the idea that a car is going to take off in the middle of traffic to get ahead of it, we're uh, you know a decade or two away from that. I mean, I, it looks great in the scissor wheel. I agree. But yeah. uh, no, these these types of vehicles are going to be essentially like toy helicopters that you have at your house that you. Uh, that go from A to B and land similarly like on a a mini helipad or, you know, maybe a Walmart parking lot, depending on your needs. But I mean, you know, just looking ways ahead, having a button you could push to go to VTOL mode. Yeah. I mean, that would be be a real safety development that could have a real impact. I'm like flying a flying vehicle, like Anna's brought up. There's all of these other concerns. Having the ability to hover above, Mm -hmm. you know, to get 20 feet above something in a limited amount of time. Like, I don't know. Awesome. Could you yeah. imagine how terrifying it would be though to have all these flying above? Well, you? What's more terrifying that or hitting the back of a semi? Well, oh. I don't have to hit a back of a semi. But if you're in that situation, <laughs> you're right. I mean, I'm not, not an, trying. I, I'm not trying to impose that upon you. It's not an either or, Jeff. Yeah. Like, but it could be if you're in it. I mean, I've been in bad accidents before on the on the highway. I've had a, I've been sandwiched between two vehicles on a Beltline accident. Being able to hit a button that basically lifts you up. So that I you're mean, not there? If it yeah. lifted you up that suddenly, again, I don't see that in the next 10 to 20 years. No. But, but I mean, like, you're right. That's the technology like, essentially, to develop. Like a, like a highway ejector button. Um, I mean, that's what you're talking about. Like, where you suddenly just hit, like, the that was easy button and you pop out of the, you know, uh, you pop into the sky. Would you be great? Yeah. Would you be great? Yeah. Yeah. Okay, just, this all sounds great. <laughs> yeah. Uh, Tim, who's watching us live, says that, Pedestrians and falling cars always have the right of way. So actually, I believe you would be at fault if the flying car fell onto your. That's car. true because you were in its way. Yeah, yep. yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, also, Can't how disagree have, with that? How have they not been sued over the name Model A yet? Wasn't there a huge issue with Tesla and the way they were naming their cars? And Ford said that they owned 
uh, Model A. Because uh, Jeff says it's not a problem. Either. No, that was E. Model E. It was Model E. Okay. I just, okay. Yeah, E is what Ford uses. Yeah. Okay. I just, uh, and I also like how it goes from Model A and then the other one they mentioned is the Model Z. It's like, I think that's very ambitious. Maybe just call it a Model B, you know? <laughs> um, and also, so when we're talking about what this looked like, uh, to me, it looked like something made on the show Gas Monkey or Dream Machines, you know, where they have like a week to make a flying car mm-hmm. because it looked really cut and paste together. Uh, the rotor, I mean, essentially it looked like uh, a, a cage on top of a like a quadcopter. Yeah, like let's put some netting around that. Yeah, it's going to look so cool. Yeah, uh, there was, I mean, I do like how the idea of transitioning from it going up flat and then transitioning um, to like kind of fly forward uh, with the top of the car. Yeah. Um, I don't know. I like it because there was that other company a long, uh, a couple years ago that um, did the flying cars that were essentially like a flying saucer. Um, and they had docking stations at um, uh, businesses. So you could take your flying saucer to your office and dock it right to your bu- right to the building. Hey, this is all this. I mean, obviously it didn't come, it didn't uh, come to fruition, but you, you like the dreamers out there. Sure. Um, it kind of, it also reminded me of like a flying fan boat. Um, the one, so Eric Ball, Impact Venture Capital founding general partner who witnessed, that's another, well, that's another part of this that we didn't talk about. He said when he witnessed this prototype flying that he felt like he was witness to a Kitty Hawk moment. And one thing I would like to bring up is how much are they full of it that they saw this thing fly? Mm-hmm. And how did it fly? Like, yeah. I mean, are we talking like it went a, a foot <laughs> off the ground? But the way they were talking about this thing. Yeah. yeah. It, okay. Uh, Alex is watching us live. Says the reason uh, Musk wanted the Model E. Oh, yeah. Was to have the models spell sexy. And Ford had it. Mm-hmm. Uh, thank you, Alex, for watching us live. In uh, our next most popular story. Suspension bridge collapse kills at least 133 in India. On Monday, military teams were searching for missing people after a 143-year-old suspension bridge collapsed into a river in western India. Hundreds of people were dropped into the water. At least 134 are dead in one of the country's worst accidents in years. Now, attention has turned to why the bridge built by the British in the late 1800s and touted as a, quote, engineering marvel, collapsed, and who might be responsible. In March, the local government awarded a 15-year contract to maintain and manage the bridge to Oriva, a company mostly known for making clocks, mosquito rackets, and electric bikes. The company closed the bridge for repairs, and it reopened just four days before the collapse. It was the local New Year. Nine people have been arrested, including the managers of the bridge's operator, Oriva Group. Jeff, at least 177 survivors have been pulled from the river, but it's unknown how many could still be missing. There are a lot of frustrating things, and I understand it's a different, uh, we're in a different culture or country, but when it comes to safety and infrastructure, I just don't know how you get so laissez-faire that you put a company that typically makes mosquito rackets in charge of a suspension bridge that can hold hundreds of people. Yeah, sort of the perfect recipe 
for disaster here. Did you see this video? I did watch the video. Yeah, it was um, terrifying. Yeah, absolutely terrifying and horrible. I like again, you know, getting back to this sort of being this horribly perfect combination of things. When you look at the old infrastructure, what a hundred and forty three year old bridge. Mm-hmm. I wonder if this wasn't looked at as more of a um, kind of a monument. I understand it was utilized, mm-hmm. but almost looked as more of a legacy site or and it was more about preserving as opposed to actually understanding what it took to make this thing as usable as it was needed i know i think the demand must have been underestimated dramatically mm-hmm. especially due to the fact that there wasn't a whole lot of testing before it was going to be stressed to the absolute max mm-hmm. yeah so correct me if i'm wrong but i believe this was the beginning of diwali yeah they're uh the, yeah, the, the new year yeah so there was a ton more people on that bridge at that point in time than there would be at any other time during the year so Poor hindsight in terms of planning that way, in terms of making sure it wasn't safe or having more time to ensure it was safe before then. It didn't even really even get tested out. Mm-hmm. You know, really a lot of people are heavy foot traffic going across it until you had it hit with the absolute most that it could be. And it was over capacity. Mm-hmm. So I think that's, again, getting back to the contractor choice, them looking at it maybe from a quality perspective, but not necessarily a usage perspective and understanding mm-hmm. all of those different dynamics. Something as simple as, Hey, we can only have so many people on yeah. this bridge at a time mm-hmm. and having some sort of control in place to limit that just sort of leads to the inability or, or just a poor selection of somebody to manage this type of project. Mm-hmm. And again, I wonder if it goes back to the fact that they weren't looking at it as a functional through fair and more as just a site to make sure yeah. it looks good. And it's, it's kept up and, mm-hmm. you know, that well, type of thing. I mean, it was a celebration. So there were people that were you know, rocking back and forth on it, jumping, dancing, you know, it was taking more stress than perhaps just a few people walking across it uh, day to day. And uh, um, after watching the video, I was surprised. I mean, it definitely looked like a rickety bridge to me, but if your government opens up something that's part of the infrastructure, don't you just inherently believe it is safe? I do. I think that that's the the biggest issue here. And, uh, you know, as you mentioned, nine people were arrested in connection with this collapse, reportedly associated with either the construction or the maintenance, although it seemed like there were maybe some fall people in there as well, people that were in charge of like, um, I don't know. They went after the mosquito racket guys. Administrative type stuff. Oh, yeah. okay. Um, so a recent report said that nearly 500 people were present on the bridge when the support cables failed. <clears throat> but according to officials, the bridge was only capable of supporting about 125 people. Oh, my goodness. Which is a very low number, to your point, if you look at that bridge and that there's no indication posted or anything along those lines that there is a limit. How do people know? I, You know, I think, as you said, people... Ch- trust that that bridge is capable of holding them there were reports as you mentioned of young men who were deliberately rocking the bridge while that may be relevant it doesn't matter to me in the end because again the citizens that were there should be able to trust that that infrastructure is safe my guess is nobody knew that i mean if there was a weight limit rocking of the bridge uh could cause this catastrophic accident nobody was there to die like why no one would be on that bridge if they knew that right Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. um so per- perhaps something could have been done there to clarify and absent of this stress test um, that should have been done in advance and wasn't, I think it was just clearly a failure on many levels. Um, in the U.S., bridges that are 20 feet or longer are mandated to be evaluated and issued a load rating, mm-hmm. though um, that hasn't stopped weight-related accidents from happening in the U.S. even. Like yeah, that bridge yeah, in Minneapolis, yeah. that, right. that was a weight-related incident and 13, 14 people died um, when that happened. But um, 
Yeah, I think to think about this and is like 10 times the fatalities that we even know so far uh, um, compared to the Minneapolis bridge collapse, which is very vivid in my mind still. It's just heartbreaking to think about what those people are going through. For me, it also made me think of the the footbridge, the pedestrian bridge in Florida, I believe, that's very similarly collapsed right after it was built because right they over were the using street, right? Yeah, yeah. Right over the street. And they were, uh, because they were using uh, new manufacturing techniques. Mm-hmm. Um, a local official said, Oriva, the company had reopened the bridge without first obtaining a quote fitness certificate. Now this is a claim that's not been independently verified, but the state government said that it has formed a special team to investigate the disaster. Um, I also wanted to note the heroes of this story the people who fell in were able to swim and bring uh, some people that were injured um, to shore and the people that rushed in to try and get people out of the water. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, there could have been more people uh, severely injured or uh, dead as a result uh, if these people kind of didn't spring to action. Um, Jeff, what, uh, you know, did you have anything else regarding um, the bridge in India um, and what could have prevented it? I don't know about preventing it, but a couple of other points here. One of them, according to a point from Reuters, when the municipality was managing the bridge, mm-hmm. they only allowed 20 people on at a time. Oh, my goodness. So the other thing is this provider, this new uh, maintenance supervisor, whatever you want to call it, this company said they issued up to 500 tickets oh, to go across to the bridge. On? Oh, my goodness. So, so they had to have an awareness that this there was a potential for this overcrowding yeah. to happen. The other thing is... We ran this story one day. The next day, we ran the follow-up story talking about the arrests. Mm-hmm. Now, say whatever you want about how things work in different countries. In the U.S., there would have been a lot more finger-pointing and investigating and trials and inquiries and everything else mm-hmm. before anybody was brought to justice. So you do have to applaud the municipality here for acting quickly and, and jumping after these folks who did a poor job in advising the public what was going on here. For sure. Well, when you talk about the administrative people that were arrested, perhaps it was whoever was selling tickets. And they're just like, I mean, because I mean, this is, I mean, uh, it makes me think of like a, a ride operator that's putting people yeah. that are either too tall or too right. short, you know. Yeah. And it, is, it validates that you're safe to be on there if they'll sell you a ticket, right? Yeah, absolutely. Um, unless, the, I mean, unless there is like some sign that just everybody in the world has missed that clearly said only 20 at a time. Um, all right. Our most popular story this week. Owners reacquire EDM company nearly 10 years after selling. Ed and Tanya Beaumont started Beaumont Machine 30 years ago in Cincinnati. The company makes EDM machines, or electrical discharge machines. Beaumont Machine, originally Beaumont Machine Repair, serves the aerospace, power generation, and electronics production industries. The company started by building fast hole EDM in 1997 and has been specializing in EDM technology ever since. They've worked on some cool projects like SpaceX SpaceX rockets and projects with Lockheed Martin, Pratt & Whitney, and General Electric. The company has also been called upon to complete work involving, quote, dark projects. And that just means they're really cool. In 2013, the couple sold their business on to greener pastures, but they struggled as they watched from the sidelines as the new owners ran their baby into the ground. When it came time to sell Beaumont Machine, Ed and Tanya didn't just want to cash out, but see their company thrive under new ownership. According to Ed, repurchasing the company was never part of the pe- part of the plan, but their vision for their company moving forward never materialized. The Beaumonts 
used to keep everything in-house to keep a close eye on quality, but the new owners tried to cut costs by farming out work. The new owners also moved the company, which hurt staff numbers, and the company pulled out of the market from an advertising perspective, according to Ed Beaumont, placing just one ad to sell equipment since 2013. The Beaumonts watched as the company they grew from the back of a pickup truck to a 21,000-square-foot shop declined. So, they bought it back. Now, the the Beaumonts have regained control of the company and moved operations to a larger location outside of Cincinnati to increase production and expand service capabilities. Jeff, this was just a good story of, you know... (laughs) Two people kind of righting the wrongs. You know, uh, this we never see the story. For me, like uh, you always see somebody like uh, with acquisitions or selling companies, there's always a culture shift no matter what. And everyone always says like, man, I never, there are a lot of regrets as a result. And it's just so rare that you actually get an opportunity to buy it back and make it right. Well, we did. <laughs> I mean, yeah. this one resonated on so many levels. Um, yeah. The five people in this room can appreciate this in spades. Yeah. So, um, yeah. And if you want more detail on that, try to get, you can get a hold of us. I'm just going to bite my tongue on that. But I think one of the things that this also reinforced is that a lot of the things that when you talk to um, the, the owner that bought it back and he was talking about the things that weren't be done and that they're going to start doing, they were not rocket science. Yeah. Like they were not overly impressive or complicated strategies, but it means getting in there and doing the work. Mm-hmm. And that's what they needed to do. It's about personal relationships with vendors. It's about doing stuff in-house when it makes sense, not because from a cost perspective always, but also be from a, an expertise perspective, a quality control perspective. You don't get military and dark contracts yeah. by just finding a guy who can do it a little bit cheaper. Yeah, You get those contracts and you grow that business because you have an expertise, <laughs> because you're hands-on and doing it yourself. Mm-hmm. And I think that's where there was this huge disconnect between the these two different owners. Um, and, and congratulations to these guys. It is awesome. It's Ed Beaumont, correct? Yeah. Um, the fact that, and he was kind of the figurehead, obviously his wife was was heavily involved as well. And she made comments as well about one of the ways we understood new applications and new ways to grow the business was by being in the business and mm-hmm. doing so much stuff in-house. So it really lends credence and credibility to that and their overall business approach. Again, it's not always difficult but you have to do the work. Mm-hmm. And I think that's what people miss sometimes. No, I think when, depending on who buys the company, they see an acquisition target and they see value, but they don't necessarily necessarily see how it's executed. Um, and a, my biggest takeaway from this, as I was mentioning, is that new ownership transitions are rarely clean. And uh, this is like a lone story amongst thousands of them that just don't go this way. Yeah. And, you know, you, the words you just said, they look at this and they see an acquisition target. Mm -hmm. Um, You know, I think that this story was incredibly interesting and very timely when you consider the heavy volume of deal making that's been taking place in the industrial market over the last at least 10 years. Um, This story is not unique in that there are a lot of entrepreneurs who are reaching the age where they want to take their money off the table. They want to retire. Um, while the pandemic served as kind of a massive challenge in some segments, we actually saw merger and acquisition activity, uh, escalate, um, because company leaders were thinking, I don't want to go through another recession. 08, 09 was, was it for me. I don't, I didn't think I'd see this again in, in my lifetime. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I got to get out of the business and retire. Right. 
Um, not to mention that there was just a lot of free money out there it made it a lot easier for companies to buy things up. Um, so activity was really just going through the roof. And I've spoken to a lot of companies um, who have very regimented, dedicated due diligence processes in place mm-hmm. when they look at um, their acquisitive growth. I think a lot of them do. Mm-hmm. But even then, <laughs> there is no guarantee that your vision, um, this operation that you built from the back of a truck is going to be preserved. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I bet for every company that engages in this um, very proactive due diligence, there are probably several more who are in a hurry or trying to outmaneuver a competitor or they've miscalculated something. Um, and those deals, you know, they're just that much harder to achieve success with those deals. I mean, look at what's going on right now with Elon Musk and Twitter. He overpaid for that company. He is CEO now of five companies at the same time. He has mm-hmm. no background in social media. Well, you know, that that kind of stuff, though, I think happens all the time when people are like determined to make something happen mm-hmm. um, and they maybe don't quite see through the other side of it. <laughs> um, you know, you kind of alluded to it, but we've seen this happen before. Personally, um, people take private equity, stepping in, taking over something that they don't know anything about. Um, and so I and running it into the ground, running it into the ground. Mm-hmm. I mean, my point is so that, that the assets could be fire sold to old employees later down the line. Yeah, hypothetically. Hypothetically. <laughs> um, <laughs> I guess my point is that even the best deals can can fall apart after the fact. And in this case, I kind of love to see that this family was able to take the reins back because they had so much invested in the success of this. My guess th- is that there are others in their shoes that would have loved to also do that and didn't get the opportunity. Personally, though, I hope that they can get work to work immediately on uh, some kind of serviceable succession plan and then like, go retire mm-hmm. because <laughs> they deserve that. Everyone deserves to be able to retire. You don't have to work till you're 70 yeah. uh, to save the company. Go golf or something. I don't know. Find somebody. To <laughs> take well, I think it there's over. a lot of passion associated with this business. So yeah. it wasn't, you know, it's 20 people. At its yeah. height, so it wasn't yeah. a huge business, but, and I bet you they bought this thing for 30 cents on the dollar from what they sold it. Yeah. I mean, to oh, get yeah. it back. So they probably came out ahead with it too. Well, I would, uh, I would just suggest that if you're in, if you're, if you're maybe a smaller company or any company and you're looking to do something, uh, maybe get out of the business, maybe look internally. Uh, because anecdotally, I know some of the smaller machine shops, uh, that have been passed along to, if not family, people that have been with the company for a long time and kind of continue that legacy and also know where investment could improve day-to-day operations. Uh, whereas on the other side of that, I've also seen acquisition or uh, companies come in, buy family companies, and they just strip it. Mm-hmm. They yeah. put in their SOPs. And it doesn't matter if you've been the head of engineering for 30 years. It doesn't matter if you're the previous owner's son. You're just another guy that is either in the way and not doing things the way that the new company is doing them um, because you're tied to that legacy uh, and you just got to go. So it's, um, I've been, I've seen it. I've witnessed a couple of these and they're also, they're just, they're heartbreaking. You know, when, especially some of these workers, when there was only 21 employees, they were probably there for decades. I mean, and like essentially built the company with the Beaumonts. And, uh, I think that more, more so than their company, uh, uh, failing, I think when they see like those companies that kind of mm-hmm. grew the business with them, they feel like they're failing them. Yeah. And that can be hard. That yeah, hard. I'm sure. Um, yeah. Uh, at its peak, the company employed 21 workers, but that had decreased to single digits. 
Um, and right now, a uh, big part of uh, what Ed's trying to do is just get the word out and reconnect with old customers. Um, because that's another thing. Like sometimes these are uh, relationship businesses. Um, yeah, absolutely. You know, when we talk to so many job shops, machine shops, everything, they're not, they don't, uh, they don't do any sort of advertising because everything is word of mouth, but so I can understand the point of where they didn't buy a lot of advertising, but if the quality of your work is going down, word of mouth is going to go away and you're going to evaporate. Well, this just, this feels to me, and again, we didn't have a ton of details on the sale and the former owners and stuff, but it just feels to me like this was a bigger business. I'm not even saying it was a huge conglomerate or anything. Saw this as a way to expand. And the first thing they did when they come in in order to make it more profitable is, well, we've got a great name. We've got a good product. How more cheaply can we do it? Yep. And that's what they're focused on. Yeah. All right. Well, before we move on to in case you missed it, we have another word from our sponsor. Regardless of what you hear, supply chain disruptions, labor challenges, and low-cost foreign competition are not the biggest threats to U.S. manufacturers. Ransomware gangs, phishing schemes, and IP theft now top this list. That's why the Security Breach Podcast, hosted by Jeff Ranke, takes these hackers to task, examining how groups like Reveal and Exotic Lily are able to organize their attacks and how the industrial sector can protect themselves against tools like Cobalt Strike and Raspberry Robin. Stay up to date on all these vital cybersecurity topics by listening, downloading, and subscribing to the Security Breach Podcast. And we're back. And before we move into, in case you missed it, the stories that maybe weren't as popular on the websites, but still stand to make a big impact on the industry going forward. Jeff, tell us a little bit more about Security Breach. Yeah, you know, it's, it's interesting. One of the things that I've learned is these organizations have become so complex, they operate like normal companies. In other words, they've got HR departments. They've got people recruiting for new Wait, hackers. The hackers. Yes, oh. these ransomware as a group, ransomware oh. as a group is, is is incredible, and just like anybody else, they also have quotas, oh. yearly quotas that they need to hit in terms of a tax placed, money brought into the organization, everything else. So as we wind down to the end of the year. This activity ramps up. Whoa. It continues oh. to get actually more aggressive in the last quarter of the year in many cases because they got to hit their numbers. So we talk about that stuff as well on security breach and a lot of other things that just it, you just have to be aware of right now and making sure everything is protected and buttoned up and that you know how to respond when these things happen. So this is like uh, why you see so many people pulled over at the end of the month. <laughs> Exactly. I am not going to say that (laughs) the wonderful law enforcement individuals that we trust every day would do something like that. But agreed. Time to renew your McAfee. Yeah. Uh, Jeff, I'll start with you this week. What is your in case you missed it? All right. So I picked out a story, and we this is kind of a a topic we've covered in the past. But the the story was a hunt for deep sea minerals draws scrutiny amid green push. And basically what this is about is a lot of companies looking to explore the depths of the ocean floor in finding these minerals. Now we're talking about all the same stuff that we were looking at before that have caused a lot of scrutiny over mining, just regular mining, not deep sea mining, because we're looking at stuff for like copper, um, all the other different minerals and that we need for electric vehicles mm-hmm. and to help improve our, our electrical grid. So right now, in particular, they're looking at this 1.7 million square mile area called the Clarion-Clipperton Fracture Zone. Like I said, about 1.7 million square miles between Hawaii and Mexico. So right now, there is a UN group that is basically giving out authorization for exploration, not actual mining, mm. just to explore and look and see what's there and then report back. And it creates a lot of environmental questions, obviously, because 
we don't know about these ecosystems. When mm-hmm. you look at the ocean, you know, what's the common stat? It's like 1% of it has actually been explored, yeah. documented, and understood. So there's no real understanding what's going to happen if we go down there and start drilling for all this stuff we need. Mm-hmm. What's going to happen to these ecosystems? What's going to happen? What do we do from a carbon capture perspective? What's What are we going to release when we start drilling into the ocean floor? So it's this ongoing debate that we have between we want to preserve the environment by more electric vehicles, but in order to produce more electric vehicles, we need a lot of these rare earth elements and we're running out of places to find them. Mm-hmm. One of the places they think they are available is at the bottom of the ocean, but we don't know how that's going to impact things environmentally. So it's this weird tightrope that we're walking right now and trying to figure out the best approach. Yeah. Where's it going to come from? I'm sure if we just send a bunch of people out there stabbing holes into our oceans, we'll be fine. Well, I mean, we have to figure it out though, don't we? Yeah. Yeah. No, we have to see if, if if we can't, if we can safely abstract, extract all of this stuff, we need to figure out if that's even possible. But if by just figuring out if we can do it, are we also potentially opening ourselves up to more danger, and more environmental negative impact? It's so. at least more realistic than, you know, mining asteroids in the moon. So there's yeah, that. There is. Right? Maybe better? Y- easier? Yeah, we don't know if it's better. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Uh, Anna, your thoughts on, uh, you know, jabbing the ocean's bottom? Uh <laughs> You know, sometimes it just uh, wow, just sneaks up on you. Did it? Just sneaks up. Oh, <laughs> all right. Sorry. Yep. I'm gonna just. Yeah, let's uh, hammer just, through. What I, do you think about this hunt for deep sea minerals? Yeah. So, um, I would say, like, potentially as an alternative. Um, I think in the last week or two, I read something in um, on one of the the websites that kind of. Uh, assesses scientific progress in some of the journals and stuff. Somebody had created a material, and I can't remember which rare earth element that it was, but they were able to basically recreate that um, in a lab setting, Mm. sort of at the early stages. But I do think that if collectively we are committing to this, maybe the, you know, trying to mine stuff from the ground is the easy way out. But if we could commit to putting some money towards, you know, like, um, there's all these programs like like pitch us your carbon capture technology and if if it's the best we'll give you a hundred million dollars to do it. Mm-hmm. Um, talk to some of these scientists in these labs that are working on stuff that can maybe create something artificial that could replace these rare earth elements because I think that progress is being done there, but it's slow right now and nothing is market ready. But it could be with mm-hmm. enough money if we could put enough brain power behind it, enough money behind it. Um, I would like to see exploring that option as well, not just trying to dig stuff out of the ground. Yeah, just find existing resources. And I feel like if that's not something DARPA is already doing, that's not, that just sounds like a DARPA program. That's right. what they do is they look for kind of um, uh, futuristic technologies and they fund the researchers behind it. Yeah. Well, yeah, I mean, one of the things that we always talk about or have talked about, I should say, is sodium batteries, right? They're supposedly, yeah. that's, that's mm-hmm. an option that would get away from all these rare earths, but we're not there yet. Right. And if we've got all these aggressive goals in terms of, you know, the always want to say no more gasoline powered cars by 2035, we, the best option we have right now that we have to start developing an infrastructure for are these rare earth elements. So while it is tricky, 
mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, there's there's both sides of this again. I can see the folks in this article are saying, well, we can't regulate something if we don't know what it is yet. Yeah. So you, and the only way you're going to understand what it is is to get down there. Yeah. Now, there's a handful of countries that have put a total moratorium on this. We'll mm-hmm. not do it. We're looking at France, Germany, New Zealand, Fiji. Um, but then you've got the big guys like yeah. us. We're saying, well, I yeah. don't know. Let's take a look. See what we got down there. Let's take a look. How, how bad could the earthquake be? Um, Anna, what is your in case you missed it this week? Okay, so the story I selected this week um, is about salary transparency laws and <clears throat> their aim to combat pay disparities. So, starting this week, job seekers in New York City will have access to a key piece of information: how much money they can expect to earn from an advertised opening. Mm. So as of November 1, New York now requires employers to disclose what they call a good faith salary range for every job promotion and transfer opportunity that's advertised. Um, Similar laws are being adopted by some other cities. California has sort of an approximately similar type law um, that they're developing. Uh, And the idea is to address pay disparities, especially for women, people of color, uh, but also, there are benefits to em- employers um, because it gives employers a way of avoiding liability. Um, mm. But, of course, business groups um, are arguing that the law could create dissatisfaction in the workforce um, and saying that it could cause companies to have to adjust existing pay scales, blah, blah, blah. Um, of course, there's pushback, right? Yeah. Um, I think a lot of corporate America will be watching this to Mm -hmm. kind of see what happens here. I would say that, um, you know, like state systems typically already have something like this in place. They've been doing this for a long time. Everyone has survived. I'm a firm believer in not wasting people's time. (laughs) And uh, I think, um, I I don't know, in in my opinion, I think employers are just going to have to start looking at things differently. What is the role worth to you? Mm-hmm. <laughs> Less experience comes at the lower end. More experience and skill comes at the higher end. I don't think it has to be a well-guarded secret what a position um, pays, especially if it's a range. Mm-hmm. And honestly, I think it might actually limit candidates from applying for your job if you are very um, secretive about what the pay will be. They don't know if it's going to be worth it or not. Um, well, it might be something that's also forced by like a generational shift in how people are looking at the job market these days. Right. Yeah. I mean, I would look at it like what benefit does it offer now that you can be, if you're being transparent and everyone's being transparent, but um, you know, how many times have you sat through an interview? I mean, we've all hired people before Mm -hmm. sit through an interview with somebody and it goes great. And then at the end, their salary expectations are completely different from what you Yeah. And, And you don't, I mean, we don't have to like, I don't know. It doesn't have to be like some secret that you don't, talk about and then it's just this weird chess game at the end and it's not really fair to the employees so. no and being on the other end of that where you do have a great interview and then all of a sudden you get the so what do you think you're worth yeah you're just like um and they say that that more? is that is a way of people um kind of low-balling themselves yeah uh because you know you're in this sort of I know the leverage is maybe not necessarily with you. If you're excited about the job, then maybe you lowball yourself. Mm -hmm. Um, They may have paid you more than you say. And then I don't know. I just, and I also think it's good for employers who's, you know, if they, how much would you hate having to defend some sort of inequality that you did not intend to apply, you know, and then, and then it comes back to bite you because someone says I am being paid less and I'm a woman. Why? Mm -hmm. I mean, how do you, so 
in this case, I think it's a good thing. I know it's going to take some getting used to, and I know employers aren't necessarily that excited about it, but no, I, uh, I can only echo your optimism for it, but I understand why there's been such pushback to it. Uh, Jeff, what do you think about a salary transparency law? I think it's offered with the best of intentions. Mm-hmm. Here's where I would go though. If I know what somebody else is going to pay for the same situation, mm-hmm. whether it was spoken or not, wouldn't there sort of be a collusion involved there and basically oh. saying, you know what? Hey, let's talk a little bit here. Let's, yeah. let's, let's get together on here so that neither one of us is overpaying. If yeah. we're going to be that transparent and everybody's going to know, I think it could actually lead to more people being underpaid because the market could dictate and not worry, have to worry about competing based on salary for other employees. Well, they don't even need to collude. They could just see it. So they could just see like, okay. That's what I'm saying. Yeah, it doesn't even need yeah, to be spoken. Well, that, yeah, that's what I, uh, the way you were talking about it, it's like, okay, let's get together here. It's like, no, it's right out there. Just they like, yeah. I mean, they may be doing that already, but now they wouldn't even have to do that. But yeah. you don't think it could just as easily go the other way? That like, oh, I my think, competitor is paying optimistically. this. I, I'm going to undercut that by like paying more mm-hmm. so I can get the better candidates in. True. I think, what do you think is more likely? That or to call that other person and say, hey, man, I see you're paying this. <laughs> if we both pay the same amount, we don't have to compete and no, we can keep I don't. our costs down. I, d- I in, don't. In I current- don't because there's not, it's not like New York City only has like two companies that are like buddies and then they're hiring the only people of that field. I just, there's too many jobs out there. Yeah. I, well, I, would I don't also think that, say that works in the current landscape. I don't think that works. Maybe if uh, rewind up where there isn't such a demand for labor, uh, but right now it is so competitive that, you know, I'd see of it more on the optimistic side where it's like, okay, they're offering this. We're going to need to offer that because there's a huge shortage. Right I now. think there's an opportunity when it comes to not paying people appropriately based on sex, age, race, those types of things. Absolutely. I think it would help That's eliminate that. Yeah. I would agree there. But again, I, I don't know. I think in the long term, if everybody knows that everybody's paying each other, I think you are going to bring, see some of those salaries brought down, yeah. not gone up. Yeah. Mm, I don't know. I don't agree, but we'll see what happens. First time ever. No, yeah, I know exactly. We always agree on everything. Well, it's I, so weird. I think it's all. I I don't know. I think uh, so. That way, I could completely uh, take the lazy way out and just say I think it's a little bit of both. Oh, when you have a you hot agree job. with also the first time that's ever happened. Yeah, yeah. You agree David's with both waffling. Us. Okay. Yeah. Interesting. Well, when you have uh, it, all depends on uh, the market. When you have a current labor market like this, uh, something like that is going to could almost create like a bidding war, but. When you have, when you don't have the demand for labor, I could then I could see where it would, you know, start bringing the uh, wages down or at okay. least stifling them. I do not think companies are calling each other and being like, "Hey, let's collude." Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I think it's done in exactly that tone. Yeah. Hey, Jeff, let's collude. Yeah, Jeff, we've got a, a mark on the line. Uh, it just says, "Let's collude." Do you want to take the call? Absolutely. <laughs> <laughs> so. Jeff is what anti-safety and pro-collusion today. He's pro-collusion. <laughs> <laughs> All right, my in case you missed it this week, uh, Stellantis offers buyouts to U.S. workers aged 55 and older. The automaker is getting leaner and plans to offer voluntary buyouts to 13,000 U.S.-based workers. To be eligible, the workers must be at least 55 years of age and have worked for the company for 10 years or more. According to the company, this is, quote, part of the company's transformation to become a sustainable tech mobility company and the market leader in low emission vehicles. You know, sometimes I wish they just said it's cost cutting. Right. A Stellantis spokesperson said the offer is a, quote, 
favorable package of benefits that otherwise would not be available to eligible workers. Last year, Stellantis offered a buyout that more than 330 workers took. Workers have until December 5th to seek a buyout. And I just want to say, reiterate that sometimes it's okay to just say, we need to cut costs. And first of all, I get it. This is a huge disruption to many who are already counting days to retirement. Huge disruption for their future plans. But I thought it could be a good opportunity for workers 55 and older to find a better paying job. Because right now, we see a lot of legacy workers who have been on the job for a real long time. And all of a sudden, new hires are coming on and making very close to our competitive salaries just because that's what the current market is. And there is, what do we always hear about? A lack of tribal knowledge in the industry. This is potentially 13,000 workers with a ton of tribal knowledge that would be very valuable to companies in a current market. And they might be able to see newer, better salaries for whatever the length of their career could be. Mm -hmm. I know that that's very optimistic, (laughs) but it sounds like they could get a good package from Stellantis and in a very in-demand position to kind of find something that might make them happier or at least... They can help yeah. write it out. Jeff, what do you think of uh, Stellantis's move to? Well, I, two things. First of all, fifty-five seems young. Yeah, mm-hmm. um, you know, maybe twenty years ago that would have been different, but today's day and age, fifty-five seems young. Yeah. The other thing is, and I don't know how you would do this because anytime you start putting an age parameter around things, you have to be super careful yeah, legally. Little but ageist. it seems. I know if I was a manager, I would want this to be more selective. Yeah. Because there's a difference between, as you alluded to, and, and I was in a factory too. I can remember working there over the summer. And basically, this guy was counting the days. He was driving a floor sweeper. <laughs> he just yeah. drove it around. You know, that's what he did all day. Because again, there wasn't a whole lot he could do. Yeah, He's waiting for retirement. But there's going to be a lot of individuals who have, like you were talking about, all that tribal knowledge. We hear that term, the, the machine whisperer all the time. Oh, yeah. And being able to pass along all of that information. If I'm a manager or maintenance manager who's going to potentially be losing somebody with all of this information because they can leave at 55, I would go to Stellantis and go, what are you doing to me here? Mm-hmm. We have a hard time finding people. We have a hard time getting people in the door. And now you're going to let these guys bail and pay them to do so. That'd be frustrating. So I don't know if you could be more selective, mm-hmm. you know, in offering something like this. Yeah. Um, I'm sure there's a lot of, like I said, managers in those facilities who would prefer that approach. But I don't know if you can do that. Well, so. and I'm just... I'm hearing stories of people trying to bring on new workers and as like a simple where their skill level is, they ask them to read a tape measure and they can't, you know, it's uh, so, I mean, the quality of labor out there for maybe some more of these technical positions. uh, These are people that, again, depending on their skill set, could go in and probably do the job of one or two, maybe three people that you're looking to hire and train up. Uh, So, and I don't know if you got the same vibe, maybe Mm. it's too optimistic, but I just, uh, see a lot of possibly valuable talent entering the workforce. Yeah. And I don't think this is the worst thing. I mean, you know, it's, it's an option that they can have. They, right. you know, that it's not like Stellantis is forcing anybody out the door right now. And I wonder how the process works. Like, do, can they, are they applying for the buyout? And then can their management say like, no, no, actually oh, we do need you yeah. to stay. I mean, maybe that's how they are selective. I don't know. Yeah. Um, oh man. How awkward is that? Yes. I'd like to take the buyout. Ah, Sorry. No. Yeah, we're going <laughs> to yeah. need to say a no on that. Yeah. But you can go. Um, <laughs> uh, so I don't know. I agree with you. Like, you know, I, you kind of look at this like if, if, if somebody is looking to kind of spend the twilight of their career, maybe being a barista or something or doing something else, you know, then they can do so without taking a big hit. 
Mm-hmm. Why not? No, mm-hmm. I don't think it's being a barista. I think, you know. Or whatever they want to do. Yeah, I just meant like, you know, yeah. maybe they want to shift things up. And Anna really wants to ease everybody into retirement. You know, she's talking about those folks before. Yeah, yeah go golfing, some, you know. serve coffee. Well, you guys know I'm anti-jobs. <laughs> <laughs> I just want everyone <laughs> to just retire. And Especially have a, when you get to reach a certain age. Have a yeah. great time. Well, <laughs> another thing is that the job landscape is changing. So for people that are 55 plus that have like, worked like dogs their entire life, Mm -hmm. you know, putting in 10 to 12 hours a day, uh, working on weekends, like always taking overtime because that's what you always did. That's just not what happens a lot anymore. Yeah. They might find themselves in new roles where it's much more manageable at that age. Um, I I don't know. I don't know. Again, Yeah, or less physical. I mean, certain jobs are more difficult to do once you get into your fifties and sixties and maybe somebody just wants to take a break and do something else. Yeah. Sit at a desk or something. I could see that. All right. Well, let's, before we get out of here, move on with our final thoughts. Anna, what is your final thought for us this week? Okay. So um, this week was Halloween and um, we had an awesome time taking the kids trick-or-treating. As always, they just like love trick-or-treating and we had a good time. My daughter, who's seven, lost her. She was dressed up as a princess and she lost her princess wand like pretty early on. Um, And there's like just leaf piles everywhere (laughs) in her neighborhood. So we could not find it. And then... um, Yesterday, it was on our front doorstep, and I have no idea who found it or brought it to us, but we didn't tell anyone that she had lost it. Yeah. Just one of our neighbors, I think, just realized, I don't know how you would know of all the princesses on Halloween night. Whose wand it was. The first door. It was like the next door neighbor. (laughs) Probably. (laughs) (laughs) Anyway, it just was, it was uh, warmed my heart that uh, we got the wand back and I have no idea which one of my well-meaning neighborhood um, allies found that wand, but it was very sweet. So it's a nice end to that story. That's a hero. I got to say one thing. There are definitely, there's definitely the evil side or the bad side of neighborhood pages on uh, social media and different websites. Mm-hmm. But one of the good things is that uh, you always see those posts like, hey, I found this stuffed animal. It looks well-loved and like it needs I a know. home. You know, yeah. I mean, uh, just in, in our, uh, when we were kids, it was that car is gone. It doesn't matter how special it was to you. Not a chance. <laughs> um, <laughs> and it's just, uh, it's cool that uh, people can kind of uh, have an opportunity to get those back. That's yeah. a really cool story. Um, my final thought this week is uh, that today I donated blood, so I was a little little more lightheaded. I should have gone a little stronger on the water and the juice when they were off of there. But uh, uh, there is a blood shortage, and so if you have the opportunity and the ability to go and donate blood, I encourage you to do so. There are many good people that need that, and uh, and it doesn't take a lot of time. It was I was in and out of there in 30 minutes. It was mm-hmm. great. Came back a little lighter, but scored like Four bags of Chips Ahoy. I'm just like, I gotta, I gotta, I gotta stay <laughs> I clear. All these. They're like, well, we have apples too. I'm like, don't worry about those. <laughs> like uh, the bagged ones, well, uh, those will transport better. Uh, the other was that we had like a little family crisis this week. And I just want to thank all the EMTs out there for everything they do and their professionalism. Thank you very much. Uh, Jeff, what is your final thoughts this Everyone's week? Everyone's okay now though, right? Everyone's okay now. Okay. Yeah. Jeff. Uh, we've got two serious situations to address. The first of all is I'm getting really old because this oh, week no. my daughter, my youngest daughter is going to turn 17. Ah. So Whoa. happy birthday, Helga. Um, love you. Proud of you. All that good stuff. Helga, are you not allowed to say? I'm not allowed to say their names, oh, their okay. real names. So we're going with Helga. Oh, man. One more year until happy you Happy birthday, Helga. Helga. Yes. 
So, but she reminded me, she reminded me of uh, how old I'm. That makes me that she's 17. Mm. So the other thing is we are out of today in manufacturing podcast hats. What? I didn't even get one. We are completely out. So we need a new giveaway. We need you to send them back. So this is the. (laughs) (laughs) You've had them long enough. Other winners are waiting. That was a rental if we were not clear. (laughs) Um, So that's actually the polling question this week is what should be our next giveaway? Some of the ideas we've had thrown out there are like can koozies, mm-hmm. um, water bottles. Hmm. We could do some new t-shirts. We've had some concepts uh, put together on some new t-shirts. I know David <laughs> is always a fan of the pin or oh, button. Yeah, buttons are strong. Uh, chip clips are another thing. See, producer Alex is saying fanny packs because mm-hmm. he'd be the only one wearing one. Yeah, those would go like I don't know who would wear a those single out. hot cake. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so if you have ideas... Four. If you like mm-hmm. any of those, or if you have ideas for a new giveaway, that's the polling question. I, we would love to hear from you. So. Jeff, we have a possible other candidate for this one. Uh, loyal listener, Seth. Uh, we kind of joked about it on the podcast uh, last week or two weeks ago. Uh, loyal listener, Seth, made us not salsa, because I think he was making salsa, yeah. but he made Today in Manufacturing Cowboy Candy. That's amazing. Maybe we could do this. What is what is Cowboy Candy? I'm not entirely sure, but hopefully he can make enough of this. This looks like, what, like pickled, is like peppers? Looks like a, is this, yeah. Can I open this? This is, Looks right. like peppers I'm oh, afraid of. I don't know. I don't know. I feel like this is going to be a very pungent job. Spicy stuff. Spicy and sweet at the same time. David, oh. don't do oh, it. Oh, no. Yeah, you're going to get hurt. <laughs> there is a... Strong aroma. Hmm? Super good. All right. I'm going to try a piece David's, of cowboy David's candy. getting bold. And yeah. see. And see. Oh, it is sweet and spicy. Holy Jesus. Actually, this is delicious. <laughs> Charlie, I, think I will wait until after I go over my last polling question <laughs> you in know case what? I need to duck out. Why don't you get that polling question? <laughs> All right. <laughs> All right. The polling question from last week while David tries to find his tongue. Um, was which of the following situations do you think creates the strongest misperceptions of manufacturing with younger generations? The options were lack of quality controls that lead to product defects, plant closures and consolidations, court settlements stemming from employee harassment or abuse, or the end of legacy brands. Just reading a couple of um, comments from you guys, from the listeners. Um, first of all, we had Larry, um, Larry Patton. He's been a frequent commenter faithful listener. Um, he, he suggested it was court settlements stemming from mistreating employees. He said, this was a tough one since it's been a long time since I was on the job market, but I think people want a job where they can feel valued and mm-hmm. needed. And this type of behavior by a company makes that harder to sell to younger people. Yeah. I would definitely agree with that one. Another good com- comment came from Tom. Um, his feelings were the lack of quality controls that lead to product defects. He said, with the quick and widespread reporting via news and social media, reaction to issues and recalls seem to give corporate manufacturing a difficult challenge. That's a great call, especially with social media and how the younger generation is definitely more attuned to that than maybe mm-hmm. we would think. So overall, responses um, were a dead tie. Actually, the ones that, that you guys said were the most, the ones that led to the strongest misperceptions about manufacturing or the lack of quality controls that lead to defects and plant closures and consolidations. So appreciate everybody chiming in there. David also had something from Colin Wheeler that you would find interesting because you had oh. mentioned about what is it like when you're closing down one of these facilities oh. and he shared his firsthand experiences. Okay. Um, let me see if I can find it here. He said, I had to. Well, as you find it, I have to say that we have to add this to the list. This is delicious. Yeah. It like the cowboy candy gets you, gets you out of the gate. And then uh, 
<laughs> You're still red, dude. Oh, yeah. I know. I'm like, uh, I'm going to be flush for a bit. Um, but it is delicious. It's a, you know, that's a enjoy in moderation sort of treat, <laughs> which will be actually probably a good exercise for me in general. Um, getting to Colin's comments here. Uh, he said, uh, I had to close a heavy manufacturing plant and it is not easy. Sure. I had more time with a paycheck, but I had to stay to agreed time to close the plant. I missed out on some job opportunities. When a plant is closed out, cleaned out and closed, all equipment and inventory is moved to new sites and the rest is scrapped. The floors and pits are cleaned and filled to give the plant a good appearance or environmentally or clean look. He said, I was there a year. It was a year of being sad and you have to focus Aww. on the task to get through it. In hindsight, I think I would have, I said I would stay to clean it out, but I should have quit after everyone else was gone. So that was his perspective. He said it was obviously pretty tough and, uh, in hindsight, Colin? he probably would not have said, yeah. No, thank you very much for the insight, Colin. That's, uh, I mean, insider, uh, insider perspective is like invaluable to Absolutely. our listeners. Um, well, Seth, send more jars of this. For Jeff and Anna, because this one's mine. I gotta say that the uh, the branding is also amazing. He's got like the fire, the flame on there, yeah, absolutely. the flame around the uh, the hot. It's a hot mic. It's yeah, a hot mic. there's a cowboy hat on there, and yeah, yeah. today in manufacturing, put a podcast, rooster on there, cowboy. And you're all yeah, set. It just needs a rooster, right? Yeah. Okay, all right. <laughs> this is the thing that's gonna lead to a very serious thing for me later. All right. Well, before we get out of here this week, please make sure to like, share, and subscribe to the podcast. You could also help us out a lot by leaving the podcast a positive review on whatever platform you use. If you want to email the podcast, you can reach any of us at Jeff, David, or Anna at IN.com with email the podcast in the subject line. Also, make sure to subscribe to our daily and weekly newsletters to make sure you get it delivered to your inbox first. Jeff, initial reactions? You actually taste the sweet first. Yeah. It's really good. Yeah. It's not too bad. No, no. Not, I mean, not too hot. I think it's really good. Yeah, it's really good. She's coming. She's coming, though. All right. For Jeff Frankie and Anna Wells, I'm David Manti. This is the Today Manufacturing Podcast, and we'll see you next week. Thank you for listening to the Today in Manufacturing Podcast.